Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Apparently it is that day here. All right. No, we just had a little technical problem. with We had a burp. I would call that a burp uh, with the music. Uh, all right. So um, before we get into what the show is about, I don't know. You might have heard me talking about this before the news. But for some reason, or other, I, f- I feel compelled to talk about why the show is what it's about today. Um, because, yeah, on Mondays we do try to react to the news of the weekend. And so the news of the weekend, I mean, probably the big story was all this stuff that Rudy Giuliani was saying. And, and I think it's a mistake. <laughs> I mean, first of all, I just I should put my cards on the table. I've been a working journalist, full-time working journalist now since 1976. And I've interviewed a lot of people, including some fairly horrible people. I'm pretty sure that I have never been as personally repelled by a human being as I was by Rudy Giuliani when I interviewed him. So I don't consider anything that he says to have any real force. So we're not doing anything about that today. And meanwhile, I feel as though Puerto Rico is, no matter what kind of story we make it into, we're not going to be able to make it into a big enough story. If Puerto Rico were a state, first of all, let me just say, if Puerto Rico were a state, it would be, interestingly, about the population size of Connecticut, where I'm sitting. So Connecticut's population-wise kind of a medium-sized state. I mean, if Puerto Rico were a state, for example, it would have five or six uh, members of Congress plus two senators. Uh, It's that size of state. Um, And on the other hand, this horrible thing has happened to Puerto Rico. Ten months ago, this horrible thing happened to Puerto Rico, and so much of it has not been remediated. Um, And I do want to say, first of all, a lot of journalists are doing terrific work uh, about this, including the New York Times, whom we're about to hear from, uh, and and the Post and the Atlantic and and NPR. NPR is down there right now. Michelle uh, Norris was down there this weekend, um, and they are they're using the commencement of the hurricane season, which has happened as an occasion to look at what has and has not been fixed and what kinds of communication gaps there are about that. Um, Our team. Uh, that covers Puerto Rico, the Island Next Door Project, which consists of ace newsman Jeff Cohen and video journalism star Ryan Karen King, are leaving I th- sometime this week or next week. A- and they are, they're going to go straight to Vieques, an island that I know very well, part of Puerto Rico, which, to the best of my knowledge, to this day doesn't have a power supply. In other words, any power that's on in Vieques 10 months after the storm is coming from generators. Um, I-, I can't even wrap my mind around that. So anyway, I mean, I just feel like no matter what we do, we're not going to do this story justice. But there's been a little kind of an interesting back and forth going on about how many died, how many people died as a result of this terrible storm. And you may recall that the president, uh, when he visited Puerto Puerto Rico, he, first of all, (laughs) just what everybody wants to hear, he told them they really hadn't been anything through anything that terrible. Uh, and he claimed that there were only 16 people who died from it. Uh, and so it wasn't like one of the really bad storms <laughs> like Katrina. Uh, and this, I think, was maybe expectation setting for the fact that, oh, by the way, FEMA is really not going to come through for you for a really long time. He didn't say that part, but it's kind of like you tell people that they haven't been through a bad storm when their island is completely devastated, knocked about 100 years backwards 
uh, as a way of preparing them for the fact that you're not going to treat them as though they had a very bad storm. You're not going to get them a lot of the things they needed. But that, that number, 16, was seemed like a ridiculous number at the time, considering what we'd seen. Um, the official death count is upgraded all the way to 64. That's not the right number either. But then the question has arisen, what is the right number? And there's been a lot of uh, very good reporting about this, conscientious attempts to figure it out. Um, and then, uh, most recently, as a result of the New England Journal of Medicine, um, a new number pops up. Let's hear MSNBC's uh, reporter, Maria Atencio, uh, telling the morning host about that number. What I saw on the ground was reflective of what this study is saying now, that there are people, now we're finding almost 5,000 that died from Maria-related deaths that weren't in that official government count. Okay, so joining us now is Sherry Fink, a journalist, uh, New York Times correspondent, and the author of Five Days at Memorial, Life and Death in a Storm-Ravaged Hospital. Uh, this is about choices that were made in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Uh, she's part of the New York Times group r- reporting uh, on what has happened down in Puerto Rico. Uh, Sherry Fink, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, and thanks for focusing on this important story on a day with, as you pointed out, as every day, lots of other news and political news. Right. But I think we know if this were happening in the contigu- contiguous United States, or for that matter, Hawaii or someplace like that, and, you know, and a thousand people were dead or four thousand people were dead or five thousand people were dead from one event, this would just be a much bigger story. I mean, it would be much harder to get away from uh, than than what it's been. But, but let's talk about that number. Now that we know a little bit more about how the New England Journal of Medicine did that story I th- or did that a study um, and, and how they arrived at the number that's kind of getting slung around. It's a little bit easier to understand why it's a little bit out of whack with most of the other highly detailed reporting, including yours, right? There, there's really kind of a grouping uh, of reporting uh, on the on the death toll, and the grouping is just a little ways north of a thousand. Am I correct? Yes, and I think that uh, you know people are right to be a bit confused because there are these big numbers floating around or different, very different numbers, let's put it that way. So you have the official toll being 64 as of December. Now the government of Puerto Rico had said at that time uh, that they were going to, you know, look at that number more closely and they didn't stick by it. Um, That number is based on death certificates. So in order for uh, a death to be counted in the official toll as of, you know, December, it had to be the medical examiner of the territory, and there's just one uh, forensics institute in San Juan, had to certify that the death was either directly or indirectly related to Hurricane Maria. Um, now, that means either you know direct deaths would be uh, a flooding, an electrocution, or something very much closely tied to the force of the storm. An indirect death, you could imagine, would be something like an unhealthy situation as a consequence of the storm. So let's say you're in your home and the power goes out and, um, you know, the roads are blocked and you can't get to a hospital or the hospital doesn't have power. So you die of a medical condition that likely you wouldn't have. So the, the CDC, the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, tells medical examiners, we think you should kind of consider both deaths as storm-related. Okay, so you've got 64 deaths. Why is that number so low, the official number? That's everybody's pretty outraged, it seems, about the fact that 
the official toll is low when we have all these other numbers that are much higher. And the reason it's low is because, as you could imagine, and there have been lots of reports on this, CNN was early, BuzzFeed, uh, that went around the island, that went to various funeral homes and found that hundreds of deaths kind of, you know, were the bodies were cremated or they were quickly buried, and there just wasn't in the midst of that post-storm um, loss of power, difficulty with transportation. They weren't doing detailed investigations into these deaths. So the funeral home directors were saying, we think these are deaths that are related to the storm, but they were never kind of like officially investigated, so they didn't become part of the official death count. Now, yeah, go ahead. Uh, Yes. So you asked about that clustering of numbers just around the 1,000 people mark or a little above. Um, And that is something that the New York Times, um, that's, that's around the toll that the New York Times had estimated. And the reason you see a clustering is because these various estimates that we at the New York Times did, but also Uh, the Center for Investigative Reporting down in Puerto Rico. There's also a demographer from Pennsylvania State University. And we all kind of came out around 1,100 so-called excess deaths. The reason our numbers were similar is that we were doing a similar type of analysis. So our analysis is based on vital statistics that the Puerto Rican government uh, provided to us. And what they did was show us in the last few years, how many people died on each day of the year? Because as we know, it's seasonal. So if um, you, those of your listeners who might be in the medical field, you know that in the winter, for example, people die of the flu more often. So you really want, if you're going to look at 2017 and the weeks after the storm and compare it with previous years, you want to look at the sort of the same day in the previous year. So what we at the Times did was we took an average of 2015 and 2016, the the number of people who died each day for 42 days after September 20th, which is when Maria hit, and we compared that with 2017 data, those actual 42 days after the storm, and we found that uh, I think it was 1,047 more people died in 2017 than they had in 2016 and 2015. Um, So, again, it's an estimate, but these are deaths that we wouldn't have expected had there not been a Hurricane Maria. And in particular, as many people know, a lot of people fled Puerto Rico after the storm. If you had means, if you could get on a plane, uh, if your family wanted you out because you you did have a chronic medical condition and you couldn't get the right type of uh, medical care at that time, a lot of people left. So, the, the population, the denominator, so to speak, would have been lower. So you would have probably expected fewer people to be dying in that period just because you had fewer people. So again, all of that suggests that there, was, there were more deaths than, um, than would have been expected and significantly more, way more than that 64 figure. It makes sense because, like you pointed out at the start of the hour, there was There were many, many weeks, months, in fact, until this day, parts of Puerto Rico where there was no power, where there were no cell phone communications. You couldn't call an ambulance. You couldn't call 911. Um, So the infrastructure was hobbled for a prolonged period of time and in some cases isn't back yet. When I went to Puerto Rico several weeks after the storm, 
And I um, focused my reporting particularly on people with chronic medical problems in one building, in one housing complex with, with hundreds of seniors. And the amount of problems they had getting proper medical care was staggering. So these numbers are very understandable, that, that more people would be vulnerable, would be getting sicker, and would be dying as a, an indirect uh, result of the storm. I think, you know, statistically, uh, this is like trying to nail Jello to the wall, too, because, in fact, as you said, there was this big exodus. Well, some of the people in the exodus were people with chronic medical problems who weren't getting treated, didn't have access to diabetes medication or chemotherapy or whatever it was that they needed, couldn't even, you know, the roads were not that passable. I mean, it made sense to get out. They may have died in New York or Hartford or in Miami or wherever they went. That's going to be very hard to count. Uh, and for all the reasons that you're saying— the the, the the unrepaired infrastructure makes communication incredibly hard. Um, I, I, just because you have some experience with Katrina, maybe you could contrast um, getting a hard count out of Katrina and getting a hard count out of Puerto Rico. I, I feel like those are somewhat different jobs. Yes and no. Um, so, so this Harvard study that you talked about did something that has been done after other disasters and even in conflict situations, which is do a random survey to try to get a sense of how many people died. It's a completely different method. And as you pointed out, they came up with a number that was upwards of 4,600 4, people, again, kind of couched in that excess death. So 4,600 more people dying uh, as an estimate, of course, than they would have expected. Um, and the way they did that was through a survey. So they looked at, um, they divided the territory up into different areas, looking at remote areas and urban areas, and then they took random samples of households and they would interview each household representative and ask, how many people died within your household, if anybody, in the past year? If so, which month and what did they die from? Was there any link to Hurricane Maria? And out of that, they came up with a number. I think it was uh, 56 people out of more than 3,000 households. And they converted that into a mortality rate. They extrapolated it to the larger population, and they compared it with 2016. Because it was a survey, and similar things have been done, like I said, in after Hurricane Katrina, et cetera, um, there's a large margin of error. So that 4,600 figure, in fact, the, the so-called confidence interval, the, the sort of range of deaths uh, that there could have been based on that sample was anywhere from about 800 to 8,000 people. So they're quite statistically confident that the death rate increased, but it's quite a large margin of error there. So in, in some ways, it's very consistent with these other um, estimates that we're seeing, but it's not a point estimate. And a, a lot of people might be confused because, um, you know, the headline says 4,600 people died. Right. And I, I think, you know, as we think a little bit about why this is important, uh, we often wind up having to adjust numbers or deal with I, I was doing live on-air reporting during the entire time of 9-11, and people forget, but the death toll was all screwed up at that initially, and it was way, way higher. Every day it went down, 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 down. Uh, it took a little while to figure it out. I mean, I think in the case of Puerto Rico, particularly from the point of view of the kind of work that you've done, trying to figure out how many people died as a result of this uh, is important, too, because 
there's stuff you can learn from that. I mean, if in fact mm-hmm. people are dying one month, two months, three months, five, six months later because of maybe some conglomeration of uh, untreated medical problems and stress and living in a house that doesn't have a roof or a tarp or whatever, I mean, just like all these things kind of coming together and creating a sort of whirlpool effect that drags somebody down uh, into death. You want to know that because some of that's redressable. You know, mm-hmm. there, you can't stop hurricanes from coming wherever they're going to come. But you can treat people better after hurricanes and get and get the kind of services and, and stuff that they need. So it is worth knowing the real number, I assume. You're absolutely right. I, I think, I mean, I would agree with you. I think it matters for two reasons. Number one, it matters to the families of those people very much. And um, also just like you said, how does this compare with a 9-11 or a Hurricane Katrina kind of in the public mind, in the in the mind. But pr- primarily, you want those numbers and you want them quickly so that you can try to address what it is that people are dying from. And the quicker the government has a handle on that and the population has a handle on that, the more chance that these kinds of things can be addressed, um, both after a storm and also in, in pre- preparation. So I think there's great value to knowing this. It's not merely like a number to wave around or a political football as it has sort of become, but something very, very important in terms of preserving human life. And of course, deaths are just the sort of the the tip of the iceberg because you have a lot of people um, who haven't died but who have suffered in various ways, whether from physical health issues, um, emotional problems, you know, just the the difficulty of the circumstances. The, The other big difference with Katrina, I think, is that um, I mean, a similarity and a difference, because in, it just has to do with how long do you look after the actual storm. And I think we journalists tend to go into a crisis when it's at its peak, and there's a lot of interest, and we do a lot of coverage. But anybody who's lived through a significant disaster, and I mean, even in your listening area, there have been um, crises and disasters in the past, uh, you know if that's your community, the real the tough slog in the long haul is the rebuilding. And in uh, after Hurricane Maria, it's been particularly um, extreme in that these power outages, these utility outages have just lasted and lasted. And I want to recommend some colleagues of mine did an in-depth investigation of just why the power has been out so long in Puerto Rico and why why on earth has it taken so long to bring it back? Um, if you Google James Glanz, G-L-A-N-Z, mm-hmm. um, they did a, a piece for the New York Times called How Storms, Missteps, and an Ailing Grid Left Puerto Rico in the Dark. And um, I just found it, you know, fascinating and important work. Well, yeah. And I mean, first of all, there's been so, so much great journalism here. And also today, we should say the New York Times uh, has uh, an editorial uh, about the shame of this, the fact that we are 10 months in. So many things uh, have not been done that needed to be done. And, and things seem to have been done in a way almost calculated to produce bad results. So there's the infamous instance of the, the contractor who had like three employees or something in mm, Montana. Whitefish. Yeah. yeah, Whitefish that was supposed to, you know, lead this big restoration effort and was completely unequipped to do this. Um, Laura Sullivan from NPR has done some amazing reporting just about how FEMA, you know, just didn't have and couldn't get stuff that was needed, things like tarps. They have them now. But, I mean, it, it this is... 
a teaching opportunity. Unfortunately, it's a completely negative teaching opportunity, right? This is like, okay, just about everything that could be done to save or help an American citizen in distress kind of wasn't done. Well, I'll, I'll take issue with that on one level. I mean, I, yes, I've, I've reported on, I have a bit of a subspecialty, as you pointed out, having done a book on Hurricane Katrina and covered a lot of storms and disasters. Um, some of my sources and people who were part of the official response have said it was just so, so dysfunctional. They'd never seen something quite like it. And none of them were quite clear on, you know, they each had their little their little window into it and were confused as to why it was so dysfunctional and why it didn't work well. I, I would say on the other side, and um, I think many people would agree with this, that um, the, the, pop, the public response uh, has, as always, I think, in these disasters has been remarkable. Yes. So just regular people um, doing, helping neighbors, families that I saw that were looking in on other families. Um, so whether people on the island themselves and they're just strong, strong desire to help one another and help families and neighbors uh, to people coming from the mainland and helping out. And um, so there's been a lot of really admirable work. And, and even on the official side, uh, people coming in, trying to do their best. And um, so we, we always have to sort of nod to that. But one of my favorite quotes uh, from a disaster expert is um, it's, it's something to the effect of uh, what heroic work, you know, what heroes. And then he says something like, you know, we shouldn't need so many heroes. Mm -hmm. So that should be the goal to not need such heroic efforts. I think that's a great place to end our conversation. Uh, very lucky to have Sherry Fink today, journalist, uh, New York Times correspondent and the author of Five Days at Memorial, Life and Death uh, in a Storm-Ravaged Hospital. But this is about choices made in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Hey, thanks for doing this. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to shift gears. Uh, we're going to talk. Uh, it's going to sound like we're really shifting gears, but I'm not sure we really are. We're going to talk about uh, Shakespeare, uh, how, about how, how Shakespeare processes politics in his plays, especially the history plays, but not exclusively the history plays, and what lessons there are for today. So we've been. <laughs> it really is technical difficulty day here. It's amazing. Uh, all right. So we've been wanting to do this uh, segment for quite some time uh, with Isaac Butler, uh, writer and theater director, and the co-author uh, with Dan Coys of "The World Only Spins Forward: and The Ascent of Angels in America." He's the creator, and this is why we want to do this. He's the creator of "Lend Me Your Ears," which is a new Slate podcast on Shakespeare and politics. Um, I thought it was only fair to Isaac. Uh, since so much of his thinking about this podcast started with the play Julius Caesar, and since Julius Caesar is the first uh, of the six podcasts he's going to do, I thought it was only fair that I go to Rome and just get ready just for this one segment. Um, and so I was, as many people know, I was there for about eight or nine days uh, last week and the week before. And um, I want to just quickly say... <laughs> Well, the Rome is so weird because, like, so many things happen there in kind of a small space. Uh, and that space is about 
10 feet below the roadbed that you're walking on. I mean, where Caesar walked is six meters down below where you're walking at any given time. So um, they're also kind of uncovering stuff and figuring stuff out, and it's just this never-ending process. So where uh, Caesar was assassinated is this place that you go running by on your way to somewhere else, like if you're on the way to Campo, Campo di Fiore or something. People go running by it where they're pretty sure he was assassinated, and then they don't even look at it. And it's also a cat refuge, which is really weird. Feral cats live in the space on all these kind of ruined columns and stuff like that. Um, so Shakespeare, well, actually, let's bring Isaac into the process. And before we bring Isaac into the process, let us remind ourselves what it sounds like when Shakespeare treats of something like the death of Julius Caesar uh, and the speech given by Mark Antony afterwards. He was my friend. Faithful and just to me. But Brutus says he was ambitious. And Brutus is an honorable man. He hath brought many captives home to Rome, whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this in Caesar seem ambitious? When that the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept. Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says... He was ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. You all did see that on the Lupercal, I thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and sure, he is an honorable man. I speak not to disprove what Brutus spoke, but here I am to speak what I do know. You all did love him once. That, of course, well, not, not of course, but it's Damien Lewis who's doing a terrific job. I decided not to do the Brando thing. Uh, so Isaac Butler, uh, let's get started here. Um, it, it did. The idea, I think, did come to you for this really interesting podcast concept um, through the portal uh, of Julius Caesar. And, and maybe you could just say why that would be. Yeah. Um, so, uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, we, uh, yeah, when I started thinking about this, doing this podcast, it was actually very, very shortly after the uh, 2016 election. And um, it was a good time for thinking about how republics die and what happens when they do, I guess. You know, we were all sort of in an apocalyptic mindset then. And so that was the first play that I really started to think about in terms of, um, how it might comment on our current politics. It's one of a few plays that Shakespeare wrote, or one of two, two plays that Shakespeare wrote set in the Roman Republic. And I just thought that um, it, that's a really fascinating area of history. There's a lot of parallels to us today, uh, and there's a lot of sort of hidden parallels to what's going on in Shakespeare's time as well. And it would be just like a, a fun way to kick it off. I want to come back to uh, to Caesar in a second, but the other podcasts are, are going to be about, or at least focused primarily upon, Richard II, King Lear, Measure for Measure, Othello, and Coriolanus. Um, I'm I'm interested to know uh, why Macbeth didn't make the cut. Uh, it just seems like the stuff that you're exploring, uh, just uh, Macbeth is. I mean, does this, is that just for season two or something? <laughs> Well, maybe hopefully we'll have a season two. It's a, 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 for the time being, it's a mini series. Um, I felt like a lot of what was going to be covered in Macbeth could be covered in uh, sort of half of it in Caesar and half of it in King Lear. 
Um, I think Macbeth is a brilliant play. I love teaching Macbeth. I've read it many, many times. Uh, I, I just felt myself drawn, maybe even somewhat impulsively, to to other ideas and and other plays that um, could speak to other aspects of our politics. Um, uh, well, I, so that's interesting. Let's talk a little bit more about that. So, if you're going to divide um, the Macbeth thing into these other two plays, ambition is the part that goes into Caesar, right? I mean, Brutus talks about uh, how he, he loved Caesar for this and he loved Caesar for that. Uh, but when it came to his ambition, uh, Caesar had to go. Uh, and, of course, Macbeth is a meditation on many things, but ambition more than anything else. And what is it that Lady Macbeth says about, you know, he, ha- he has ambition, but, but not the illness uh, that, that must go with it or something like that. Right. Um, yeah, go ahead. Take, run with that. Yeah, so obviously, yes. I mean, Macbeth is sort of the great tragedy of ambition. There are other plays of Shakespeare's that that deal with ambition, of course, because, you know, we're dealing with political rivals, dynastic rivals, you know, uh, uh, throughout many of his plays. Um, So Julius Caesar is very much about how a society handles ambitions when the institutions that could control those ambitions are beginning to break down. Macbeth, on the other hand, takes place in a world that lacks the institutions that the Roman Republic had. And so ambition works a a, a different way in that play. And in Macbeth, what's kind of interesting is you also get this idea of the cyclical nature of things, that the play both begins and ends with the death of the Thane of Cawdor, and the you know king sort of handing out titles to people. It's a different king both times. It's a different uh, thane both times. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the interesting things uh, as well in Macbeth is kind of that cyclical idea. Um, one of the things that you get through King Lear that's also in common with Macbeth is this kind of apocalyptic imagination of what happens when... Um, the issues that are affecting the people at the very top of the pyramid from, of society sort of cause this uh, a, a, a apocalyptic wasteland to kind of unfurl around them. You know, that's one of the, the most delicious things about Macbeth is, is watching that happen. And, and in King Lear, it happens, too. I mean, I, I thought a lot about Macbeth. I don't know why we're talking about Macbeth. It's not in your podcast series, but uh, but because I'll tell you why. Uh, I thought a lot about Macbeth during the, the Obama era because mm-hmm. because here you have this guy who's a constitutional scholar, you know, uh, who taught the Constitution at a prestigious uh, learning institute, and and also you can sort of tell like who he by who he is and what he says, how he feels about very basic kind of constitutional values. And at a certain point in his presidency, as much as I admired other things about him, I realized he's pretty heavily involved in extrajudicial executions. He can't get yeah. Guantanamo closed. Totally. He's doing all this stuff that no constitutional scholar of his stripe anyway would ever do. And I thought that was that's when I thought Macbeth, and it's it's that it's that question of how did I get here? Did I get here because of some defect in me? Or was I just going to get here, you know, was I completely shaped by circumstances beyond my control? Right. Well, one thing I think is is commonality across a bunch of Shakespeare's plays is the nature of power and how power perverts us. Um, and uh, I think you see that in the um, Henry ad, the plays that begin with Richard II, but go Richard II, Henry IV, parts one and two, and then Henry V. So we talk about it a bit in that episode. And it's also very clearly the case in Lear, right? Lear has sort of been driven mad by having power, and then when he gives power up to his daughters, they're driven mad by having power. 
And you're absolutely right about what happens to, you know, Macbeth is that, you know, he keeps getting more and more or steeped in blood, even when he doesn't want to. You know, um, uh, I, I think there is a thing that comes out in Shakespeare's plays that, you know, once you once you wear the hollow crown, you know, the price of wearing the hollow crown is giving up some of your humanity. So, Isaac, um, when the podcast right around the time the podcast dropped, I was um, driving uh, downstate where I live to cover the Republican state convention, the gubernatorial nominating convention, uh, which is being held, interestingly, in a casino, in Foxwoods Casino, because obviously people make really good decisions in casinos. I mean, they're just famous for that, right? Um, so I'm driving down there, and I'm, and I'm listening. It's my first chance, really, to listen to Lend Me Your Ears, the first episode, uh, um, and, and that is about Caesar. And, and I'm kind of thinking, eh, this may be kind of a good thing to be listening to anyway while I'm driving down to cover a Republican convention. And then you say this. Caesar stood as a kind of ideal monarchist, and Brutus as the ideal Republican. And with both men, Shakespeare shows them as human by playing up their fallibility. He gives us a Caesar who bickers with his wife and suffers from epilepsy and isn't particularly bright. And he shows us a Brutus who doesn't seem to know up from down. Both men, the great military leader and the great senator, have become obsolete and neither realizes it. Mark Antony is the future because what matters now is performance, charisma, the ability to give a good speech and move the crowd. When I reread Julius Caesar, it's this reduction of politics to performance that feels so prescient. Caesar suggests that politics becomes purely performative when it has been rotted out from the inside, leaving only the veneer. But what it doesn't suggest is any way to rebuild that hollow core once it's gone. So you can imagine uh, how I was feeling hearing you say those words <laughs> as I headed down to a nominating convention. Uh, yeah. yeah, go the ahead. The conclusions I, we come to aren't always happy. No. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I, I, it was a really interesting. I hadn't ever read or thought of Caesar that particular way. But then when you, when you say it that way, it, it is, as you were suggesting too, he's not really big on solutions anyway. He just basically says, this is some of the stuff that happens. Um, you know, I don't know, talk to Steven Pinker or somebody if you want something. You know. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think Shakespeare was big on, or at least his plays aren't. I mean, we know nothing about him as a person, basically. But I don't think Shakespeare was super big on providing clear, a clear moral or a clear lesson or a clear idea. You know, every single one of his plays, almost, maybe every single one, progresses through dialectic. He's putting two different ideas, at least two different ideas, against each other and playing them off each other and seeing what happens as a result of that. And that's part of why we find so many different angles into his plays and why they've stood the test of time, I think, is because you can interpret them a bunch of different ways. But it also means that they resist... Um, you know, really easy kind of self-help readings. Right. And I, I um, you know, the, this was, might be an instance, too, where Caesar, uh, where Shakespeare actually, he actually toned down the historical reality. I don't know how much he knew about this, how much of a, this was available uh, at his particular moment. But I think we now know that um, uh, that Antony showed up for that speech with this kind of wax 
dummy of yeah. Caesar and then recreated the assassination, had it stabbed 23 times, working the crowd up to this fever pitch. So they're starting to throw their own belongings into this funeral pyre, which is building bigger and bigger. They almost burned the whole damn forum down because right. he'd gotten them so completely wild with this really extravagant uh, image-laden demagoguery. Yeah, totally. And, you know, Shakespeare's primary source, uh, uh, not exclusive source, but primary source for this story is Plutarch. It's Plutarch's Lives, parallel, or sometimes called Parallel Lives, which is a wonderful, you know, collection of short biographies of famous Greeks and Romans that I think if, you know, you can get it for your Kindle and read it or whatever. It's a really enjoyable book. But, you know, um, the section on Antony, yeah, there's no wax dummy in that. It's all about him using um, Caesar's undergarments, you know, using Caesar's robe with the stab wounds in it, which is what um, Shakespeare uses in the speech itself. Um, you're going to end this first cycle. I'm guessing this is going to go more than one cycle, unless you get tired of it. But um, you're going to end this cycle with Coriolanus, uh, which yeah. is probably one of the less seen of the plays that you've chosen. Although, it's undergoing kind of a revival these days, and, and some of the plays from that period, I think, are undergoing kind of a revival. Um, it's a great example of the elasticity of political interpretation of Shakespeare, because as I'm sure you know, I mean, the fascists in the 30s, really, Hitler really loved Coriolanus, and I think right. he even made it part of like the Hitler curriculum. There was like a Fuhrer edition, <laughs> a special Fuhrer edition of Coriolanus, which was distributed to the schools. But so did the communists, and you know, Brecht famously was trying to rework Coriolanus as this kind of communist, um, uh, uh, what kind of, uh, well, rejection of, uh, of that kind of power and, and, and an emboldening of the masses. And it's, it's, it's an interesting example of the way that people can make all kinds of different uses of the same Shakespeare play. Yeah, totally. I mean, I love Coriolanus. I'm glad it's starting to get rediscovered. There's a wonderful movie of it that Ray Fiennes directed and starred in that came out a couple years ago. Um, you know, I, I think it's a wonderful play, but you are totally right. In that way that Shakespeare's plays contain these oppositions, you really can read that play through either of those rather extreme lenses and find a lot to kind of reinforce your worldview. I mean, to me, the story of Coriolanus, and we'll have people on who disagree with me, don't, don't get me wrong, but to me the story of Coriolanus is largely about the creation of new institutional mechanisms that protect the interests of the people, and then the people immediate, which is to say the tribunes of the plebs, and then the people immediately using those mechanisms to stop a tyrant from coming to power. But the other way you could look at it is, you know, there's this guy who embodies, you know, military virtue, and he is betrayed by a feckless mob that, um, that doesn't know what's good for them. Yeah, in general. I mean, as one or two people say in the first um, one of your podcasts, uh, and then I was reading uh, an essay by Stephen Greenblatt, who I know you, I heard you have a conversation with him in Virginia Heffernan uh, about all this stuff, and he's writing about this too. But way back in 2007, uh, he writes, that is when Shakespeare tried to imagine electioneering, voting, and representation. I will just bracket, which was were not really part of his immediate reality very much. He conjured up situations in which the people, manipulated by the wealthy and fathomlessly cynical politicians, were repeatedly induced to act against their own interests. So it sort of goes back to that book. What's yeah. the matter? What's the matter with Kansas? What's the matter with yeah. Rome? Right. 
Right. Although in Tyrant, which is Stephen Greenblatt's great new book yeah. um, about Shakespeare and politics, which I think he and I both after the election were like, oh, crap, we have to go read some Shakespeare to understand what's going on right now. Um, in in uh, his book about Tyrant, you know, his his reading of Coriolanus has to do with sort of there being a, a almost a change of heart in Shakespeare's work around that stuff. In that, So in Coriolanus, the leaders of the people, the tribunes of the plebs, are venal. They're dishonest. They are not... Um, they don't have a lot of principles, but they are politically effective, and they are actually in that case, maybe in only that case in Shakespeare's plays, but in that case, they are actually looking out for the interests of their constituents. Um, we have to uh, break pretty soon here, but Isaac, I, I guess I should ask you, and this is certainly dealt with in the first uh, um uh, first episode. I mean, in the particular environment that we're in, where in fact uh, we do uh, deal with people who feel like they're being tyrannized and people who seem to enjoy tyrannizing on other people, um, there has been some use of Shakespeare already. The famous um, Central Park um, Shakespeare, uh, Julius Caesar staging, in which the the Caesar at least looked quite a bit about like Donald Trump. But as as you and others have pointed out. Caesar's used all the time. There was an Obama Caesar. There's probably a Harvey Weinstein Caesar being uh, launched fairly soon. I mean, there was a Hillary Clinton Caesar. Orson Welles staged a Mussolini Caesar, you know, um, on Broadway to comment on the rise of fascism. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very old device to do. And it's a very uh, uh, easy, and I don't think easy makes it bad, but it is an easy way to show the relevance of these plays is to make the people in them look like people we have to deal with now. Um, we're going to leave it there, although, uh, f- first of all, when is the next one? There's too much time between the episodes. I don't like waiting. When is number two coming out? <laughs> they come out monthly on the second Tuesday of every month, so a week from tomorrow is the new one. Oh, that's not too bad. Uh, all right, uh, and it's Richard II. I may have to travel for that one, too. I don't know. Uh, but thanks very much for joining us. Um, Isaac Butler, uh, once again, the podcast is called Lend Me Your Ears. Uh, it's a new Slate podcast. It's about Shakespeare and politics uh, and the way that Shakespeare, often uh, in trying to describe the politics of his time, we never really made this point, but, but but often used other venues and locales and stuff to express some of the anxieties of the Elizabethan age. Anyway, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to go a little closer to home uh, and uh, talk to John Lender, investigative reporter for the Hartford Current, uh, about a public art controversy, which I would like to point out has its roots in 1980. And now I say a to day. And now I say a to Brute. And now I say a to Brute. I didn't hear the whole conversation. Did they get into the connections between The Tempest and Stormy Daniels? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, a noblewoman of Trumbull, and by myself, surnamed Bolingbroke, Duchess of Farmington, daughter to John of Gaunt, afterwards King Henry IV. Amanda Fish is an assassin in the service of Mrs. Paul. The parts of lords, heralds, officers, soldiers, two gardeners, keeper, messenger, groom, and other attendants are played by Bill Curry. On tomorrow's show, our salute to tabloids. And now, back to Colin. All right. Uh, joining us now is a, a longtime colleague and friend of mine, John Lender. Uh, John is an investigative reporter for the Hartford Current. Uh, and over the weekend, he familiarized us uh, with uh, something else that is causing a, a lot of trouble. Uh, it is, uh, uh, well, the headline says $480,000 uh, for blocks of color on Yukon's lobby wall. So, uh, John Lender, tell us about these blocks of color and why people are upset about them. 
Well, I don't know how upset everybody is. I thought it was worth putting out there that uh, this piece of artwork uh, that was put in this new building at Yukon um, on the new entranceway, uh, uh, it's a, quite a striking thing, very colorful, uh, by the, uh, the late Sol LeWitt. Um, it's called Wall Drawing uh, Number 867, and uh, quite a famous guy around Connecticut. has a really monumental uh, thing on three walls uh, on an upper floor of the uh, Athenaeum. Anyway, uh, there was a program uh, that Connecticut's had for like 40 years uh, called the Art and Public Spaces Program, where um, if, if you have a bonded state construction project, 1% of the construction cost needs to be spent on artwork that is uh, in the building or on the grounds. And uh, in the case of this new uh, building in the tech park, I guess you'd call it, uh, at, at UConn, uh, there's a glass lobby and uh, a large, it's 10 feet high and like 57 feet wide, uh, six big, uh, they're not quite squares, they look like squares at first glance, but I call them blocks of color. Um, the, uh, the primary colors, uh, yellow, blue, and red, and uh, the three secondary colors, purple, orange, and green, are arranged just in a line. And uh, it, if you go by it at night, uh, it, it's, it's uh, pretty striking. And it cost uh, uh, $480,000 uh, under an agreement with a New York art gallery that handles the estate of, uh, of Saul LeWitt. And uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, it, it's put up by crews that are approved by uh, the gallery and the estate. And uh, there are a lot of these. This is number 867, and they can only be, according to the contract that the that the uh, state uh, that UConn signed, um, this can only be displayed at one place in the world, and uh, it's here right now. And uh, if if UConn ever takes it down, which they don't plan to do, they say um, it can be put up uh, uh, elsewhere. Right. So uh, Lewitt's work is hard for people to grasp because even when he was alive, he didn't actually, uh, for the most part, did not actually execute the the draftsmanship or whatever you might ever whatever you might want to call it. In other words, uh, he would come up with the idea, but in terms of who put it on the wall, that was usually somebody else or, as you say, crews, uh, in, including artists from around here, well-known artists like Kerry Smith and Peter Waite uh, have in long in the past been saw Lewitt Cruz. People have a hard time with that idea too, right? An artist who, even when living, didn't actually, you know, put the paint to the paper, or so to speak. Uh, and, but the problem now also is: do I, do I understand it correctly, John, that this the art and public places program has effectively expired or been sunsetted uh, because nobody has any money for stuff like this anymore? Yeah, I'm not. I mean, it's at least uh, on on the on the books that it's that it's gone for two years now. I don't know if that was a function of the biennial budget. It was part of the budget implementation bill. Uh, and they said that, you know, from 2018 to 2020, uh, n- none of this 1% allocation um, will be done anymore. I, I don't, I, I kind of suspect that they, they plan to just not do it anymore. Um, and I'm, I'm sure they're not going to leave the walls of, of public buildings uh, bare, but, you know, the requirement of uh, a minimum of 1%. Which, by the way, they didn't even um, meet in this case. Uh, the the uh, they, the four hundred eighty thousand dollars represents um, 
0.52%. And uh, so, you know, according to the law, they really should have almost doubled the price uh, of, of the art that they put in. Um, but I asked them if they planned to, uh, you know, put in more to bring them up to 1%, and they said no. And, uh, you know, what if, what if an auditor uh, criticizes it? Well, first of all, these days, I don't, you know, how much are they going to criticize it? And they basically said, uh, literally said, we could, we'll live with the, any criticism. You know, John, this isn't Lewitt's first trip through this particular gauntlet. Uh, back in 1980, he was still alive, uh, and the remodeled post-roof collapse Civic Center Coliseum was also eligible for a pretty massive expenditure for art in a public space. They picked um, Lewitt. There was a huge fight about it because back then also people were uncomfortable with, I mean, his art, you know, if you're not uh, if you're not a connoisseur or something, it it's a pretty hard thing to wrap your mind around. He wound up eventually agreeing to split the commission. It was a big commission. I think it was $100,000, but which is 1980. It was That's more money then. I think he agreed to split it in half with the Romare Beard. And, and then he was still getting hassled, and he walked away from the whole process. And I'm pretty sure the thing that you're describing in the Athenaeum is the thing that was going to be in the Civic Center. But it's an example of what happens. I mean, I think people like the idea of public art. I mean, in—, in in the abstract, so to speak, you know, but then they sort of see it and then they hear how much it costs because you have to hire a big name artist and, and it makes them mad. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I tried, I just dealt glancingly with the idea of, you know, what makes something worth a lot of money, you know, how, how, a, how an artist or the person's artwork can command uh, this kind of price. And I, I would say, you know, what, what do I know? But I, I don't think this is, you know, one of his you know, major famous works. Mm-hmm. I know I, it's, it's, I mean, it's got a concept to it uh, with the primary and secondary colors and, you know, none of the secondary colors um, are between the, the primary colors that, uh, that they would mix, you know, to be made of. And I guess I, I guess I didn't read that anywhere. I was trying to figure what the concept is, but um, yeah, you know, so in the art world, and if you take the extreme, right, uh, the guy who paints gradations of white, Robert Ryman, have you mm-hmm. ever, <laughs> some of his paintings go for like $20 million oh, at yeah. art auctions. And, I mean, all and, I have to do to get my son mad is uh, show him a Barnett Newman in any museum, and he flips out. We're going to have to stop here, John, just because I'm out of time. Uh, John Linder from the Hartford Current. Oh, by the way, John, our old friend Larry Bloom is completing what will probably be the definitive biography of Saul Lewitt. So if you decide to follow this story, oh, really? you know, call yeah. Larry up. It's going to be a pretty amazing book. All right. So my old friend John Linder, uh, and uh, thanks to everybody else who helped out with the show today. So much fun to talk about Shakespeare, too. Thank you, Betsy Kaplan and Kion Wolf. It's that beautiful art. It's that beautiful. Yeah. Evidence is irrefutable. It's that beautiful art.